Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we'll be looking at a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, a poem from her sequence of sonnets called From the Portuguese and this poem is sonnet number 17 from those 44 poems now, perhaps the first thing you might be thinking is Portuguese, poems from the Portuguese. Is this a translation? Is this perhaps a response to Portuguese art, to Portuguese poets, to Portuguese culture? Is this uh, something that Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote after a sojourn to Portugal? No, no. Um, the best way of describing the title of this sequence of sonnets is to say it's a complete lie. It's a fabrication. It is put there to distract you from the real beating heart of the poems. It is absolutely put there as a smokescreen for the truth of the poems. Because Elizabeth Barrett Browning, on publishing the poems, that's, that, that was the conceit. Um, she was pretending that they were translated or, or giving the impression that they were translated from Portuguese. So it's the work of another poet or maybe a, a group of sonnets, a group of poems from different poets and different writers of sonnets. But it, but it wasn't. It was about her life. It was about her great love. And it's a fantastic sequence of sonnets. It's uh, but it, it's so distinctive for so many reasons. They were all dedicated to the great love of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's life. Robert Browning, a, a fantastic poet in his own right. But certainly um, when they became aware of each other, or when he be she became aware of him, she was much more famous and successful than he was. So, so they were the great loves of each other's life. And this poem really tells a little bit of a story of their courtship which is a really interesting courtship a very interesting courtship he wrote a fan letter to her she was the bigger famous more famous poet she was the older woman as well and he wrote her a, a, a fan letter and she wrote back to him and the correspondence continued now at the time elizabeth barrett browning she was she was confined to her bed she was very much bedbound for many years. She had many illnesses and accidents during her childhood. I think she fell off a horse, um, but she had other illnesses as well. And so she was being cared for, I guess, by her father. Her father, who, who didn't approve of their relationship as well. Um, who So we got that. We don't like him already. He also, he made his money from owning plantations. So he made money from slavery. He then, um, slavery was abolished and he was paid compensation because the slave owners and the plantation owners were paid compensation for their great loss when, when, sla when slavery was, um, was, was abolished. And, and so I just, just wanted to set that up, but, uh, he really was a piece of, piece of rubbish, that man. And so this correspondence began. Um, so she wrote her poems, she published her poems, she was a very well-read woman, and um, she wrote poems on many issues. She she wrote um, philosophical poems, she wrote political poems, she wrote a great narrative poem, which I'm sure we might, might look at in a future episode, Aurora Lee, a poem about a woman 
who wants to be a poet, who wants to become a famous poet and the things that set her back, especially men that stand in her way. So she was quite a progressive young woman, despite her her family's background. So she's, but at this point, she, she's miserable. She, she's confined, she's confined to her room. And yet uh, this, this, this dishy young man, Robert Browning, is a massive fan of her work, starts writing her letters. She writes a letter back. He writes back to her. She writes back to him. I could keep saying it this way or that way. Um, but if I keep saying she writes back to him, he writes back to her. If I keep on going like that all the time, she writes back to him, he writes back to her. I would have to do it 573 times. That was the length of their great correspondence where their love blossomed, blossomed. They fell madly in love with each other. Um, the letters, um, I think they are all, that you can view them online. You can read all these letters online. I haven't read a single one of them. I, I'm only talking about what I've read from secondary sources about about these letters. So they wrote these letters to each other. It was a fantastic love affair. And then they eloped against her father's wishes. Hooray! They eloped against his wishes. I think they went to Italy. And um, after they married, she lived for like another 15 years, which is fair enough. And they had a child together as well. So that was pretty much the story behind this, this sequence of sonnets. So this sequence of sonnets was very much, I guess, written during the courtship period. I, 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 they, most of them, I think they were all written from this, this miserable state within her bedroom as, as she was sending these letters to him and he was sending letters back to her and she was sending letters to him and he was sending back to her and she was sending letters to him and he was sending letters back to her and she was sending letters to him and... He was sending letters. You get the idea. 573 times. Email is a lot easier than that. But even your boss at work, I don't think you've had, with just little terse one-sentence emails, you have not had a correspondence of 573 emails with each other. I'm pretty sure. Maybe you have. Maybe you write. Maybe you, listener, because I know my listeners are classy. So maybe you still do this. Maybe you, you do scrolls and everything and you've got a little big old, I don't know, signet ring that you just like boom, drive into some wax and then send on a messenger or something, some kind of pigeon or something maybe, or some other animal that you've, some exotic animal that you've tamed. I'm I'm going off on one already here, aren't I? I'm going to go back. I'm going to drag it back. But you get the idea, man. It's an intense... It is an intense correspondence then. And these weren't just little terse emails. These were long, eloquent letters. And in between all of that are these poems, these sonnets from the Portuguese, but not really addressed from Elizabeth Barrett Browning to Robert Browning. Um, I mean, Robert Browning obviously is um, a, a well-known and celebrated poet in his own right. A poet most associated with the dramatic monologue we spoke about what that was the other week and we'll revisit it a little bit after we've read the poem. I think I've set the scene though. Now you get this idea, don't you? So in the middle of this this, this great romance, these poems, these sonnets are being written by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I'm going to read this poem out twice. The reason why I'm going to read it twice, I mean, it's a sonnet, so it's not going to take up a lot of your time. 
but I'm going to read it firstly in a way that conveys the sense of the poem. And then I'm going to read it again in a way that, that conveys the sound of the poem. Um, so the first way, I'm just going to read it looking at the sentences, looking at the structure of the sentences and what's being said and the argument. And then the second time, I'm really just going to look at the meter of the poem, the stresses, the rhymes at the end of each line and give a sense of that kind of shape of the poem. Because I don't know why, but I find it quite difficult to read it in a way that emphasises both aspects of it. So in some ways we are mirroring what we might do when we have two readings of a poem anyway. One poem to really try and tease out what the poem is saying, if it is saying anything. And then um, another reading to tease out how it is saying it and, and how the style of a poem interacts with what it seems to be saying. So I'll read it out twice, once for the sense and then again for the sound. And I, I might still get, it's it's easier said than done this, but I'll try my best here to give two different sounding readings of the poem. But it will be the same poem and I won't be changing the wording or anything like that. First reading, the sense reading. Sonnet 17 by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. My poet. Thou canst touch on all the notes God set between his after and before, and strike up and strike off the general roar of the rushing worlds, a melody that floats in a serene air purely, antidotes of medicated music answering for mankind's forlornest uses, thou canst pour from thence into their ears. God's will devotes thine to such ends, and mine to wait on thine. How, dearest, Wilt thou have me for most use, a hope to sing by gladly, or a fine sad memory with thy songs to interfuse, a shade in which to sing of palm or pine, a grave on which to rest from singing, choose. Reading number two. The Sound Reading Sonnet 17 by Elizabeth Barrett Browning My poet, thou canst touch on all the notes God set between his after and before, And strike up and strike off the general roar Of the rushing worlds a melody that floats In a serene air purely antidotes Of medicated music answering for Mankind's forlornest uses thou canst pour From vents into their ears God's will devotes, thine to such ends, and mine to wait on thine. How, dearest, wilt thou have me for most use, a hope to sing by gladly, or a fine, sad memory with thy songs to interfuse, a shade in which to sing of palm or pine, a grave on which to rest from singing, choose. We can go over it a bit more in a moment but even if you made sense of neither reading of that poem and you might not have done because it was really tricky to read them and I really reckon I should have spent more time practicing them but still did you get something different each time I, I mean apart from the first time maybe sounding like a quite unwieldy argument that you still couldn't quite get the knack of and then secondly it's just something that sounded very musical 
a bit more rhythmic, but still lost you hopelessly. I don't know. Um, it could be a poem that really is made for reading rather, you know, reading silently rather than reading aloud, perhaps echoing that idea of the letters, the correspondence that inspired it. But what I'm saying here is that here is something that's quite common in poetry. It's called the double pattern. So you have two patterns in a poem. The first pattern, or let's say in a, at least in a formal poem, in a poem written in a fixed form, you have two patterns. The first pattern is the meter of the poem, the line. So each, you know, if it's not a prose poem, then you have a line, then another line, then another line, then another line. When we have a sonnet, the lines are the same length a lot of the time. They're ten iambic pentameter. It's ten stresses that are all about the same length. So you have line, 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 line. A sonnet has 14 lines of a certain length. And at the end of each line, with this form of sonnet and many other forms of sonnets, there are lines with rhymes at the end of each line as well. So that's one pattern that the poem has. But what is the other pattern that the poem has? The sentences that the poem uses. Now, this isn't as much of an issue when you look at some other poets. When you look at the ballads, it's not an issue. The, the, the sentences and the punctuation tend to line up with the lines and the metre and the rhymes. When you look at the rhyming couplets of Alexander Pope in his verse essays, it's a similar thing. They line up together. So you don't really have to worry too much about this meaning that's implied by the sentence structure, by the grammatical structure, and the meaning that is implied by the poem structure, but the structure of lines and rhymes and stresses. But this is not the case with this poem. They are quite distinctive. And that's what's called the double pattern. It's almost the tension between these two ways of reading the poem. The reading the poem as you would read a piece of prose, and then reading the poem as you would read a piece of music I guess or a song and the tensions and the differences between them now when a line of a, when a sentence of a poem does not end at the end of a line but actually sometimes carries on into the next line maybe carries on into the line after that or even finishes halfway through the line after that um, that break of the line where the sentence hasn't finished yet has a fancy word it's called enjambment and what happens with enjambment is you can create quite a tension. So if 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 the sense if a line's end where the sentences end or where there's a nice comma or some other kind of clause or subclause to say we're moving on to something slightly different in the next line, there's almost a harmony in that sense between between what is being said in the poem and how it's being said. But in Victorian poetry, and actually in the poetry of the metaphysical poets as well, a couple of centuries before this. Um, you, and in modern poetry, we don't get that same pleasing pattern. It's more fragmented. It's more dissonant in that sense. And so in this poem, just, just before we even go into what the poem actually means, we are immediately struck by... Oh, by the way, I'll have a link to the poem or I will reproduce the poem, one or the other, so that you can actually look at it while I'm saying all this. Maybe you can look at it while I'm reading it as well, if you rewind. But anyway, so there's this, there's this tension between the two. So, especially in the whole idea of sentences, I mean, one thing I notice in this poem um, is that the first sentence 
the entire first sentence runs through four and a half lines. In fact, you could even say four and three-fifths lines. So that's a, that's a long sentence, isn't it? That is a long sentence, and it's quite unwieldy. Let's look at what the sentence says. My poet, thou canst touch on all the notes God set between his after and before, and strike up and strike off the general roar of the rushing worlds, a melody that floats in a serene air purely. So, she's saying, my poet, you can make all the sounds, all the sounds that God could create, God can imagine. You almost have this, this godly gift of creation and can make from can, and can make beautiful things from from the ugly as well. This is where the, the third line really trips people up, and it tripped me up. So and strike up and strike off the general roar of the rushing worlds, a melody that floats in a serene air purely. Um, the reason why is because when you write read the lines, you know, and strike up and strike off the general roar. I'm thinking, oh, the poet can strike up <laughs> a roar. They can write something maybe that makes the world go, or they can write something to strike it away, to strike it off, to silence the world with its power. So when I read and strike up and strike off the general roar, I think of that. But it's, it, it doesn't mean that. It's and strike up and strike off the general roar, new line of the rushing worlds, a melody that floats. So... The, the the general roar of the rushing world is not being struck off or struck away. Um, something a melody is being struck from it, so it is creating a melody from the roar of the world. It is a very unwieldy sentence, a very unwieldy sentence that, in its way, it is probably slightly contorted because she's fitting into the form of an Italian sonnet. Maybe a bit more about that. But just again to say, a very long sentence begins the poem. So she elaborates on that. And now the next line is, I would say, um, three lines long. So not as long. It's not this four and a half line one. But it's so the next sentence is three lines long. Antidote, antidotes of medicated music answering for mankind's forlornest juices thou canst pour from thence into their ears just elaborating what's said before about how how his poetry can serve mankind how his poetry is a gift to the world can bring rest to our ears the next the next sentence again we're looking at the sense of the poem rather than the sound of the poem is one and a half well just under one and a half lines long god's will devotes vine to such ends and mine to wait on vine and now we have a change of emphasis in the poem. So she's saying God's God's will is that you go out to the world and enrich it with your poetry. And my use is to be of use to you um, to write about what you give to me. You can write about the world. You can create anything from the world, but everything I create comes from you. So she she leads off from that line how dearest wilt thou have me for most use a hope to sing by by gladly another well about a line and a half sentence or a fine sad memory with thy songs to interfuse 
a slightly shorter sentence this time. And then, um, so she's asking this line, you know, she's asking this question, how dearest wilt thou have me for most use? How, you know, how will you, I'm here for you. You can use me. How can I be of use to you? How will you use me? How will I, how can I bolster your great mission into the world? How can I help your singing? Um, and so she has the first possibility, I hope to sing by gladly. Actually, that's even, that's a, that's a sentence now, a, a fragment of a sentence within a line. And then, or a fine, sad memory with thy songs to interfuse two things juxtaposed against each other. And just to spill it, at spend, just to spell it, not spill it. Whether lines do tend to overspill, the sentences do tend to spill over onto the next line. That isn't in ja that is enjambment. It's a slip of a tongue from me, but I think I've rescued it there in, in a beautifully pretentious way. So, or a fine, sad memory with thy songs to interfuse. So this is thing, am I hope or am I, am I sadness? And just to really ram that message home, a shade in which to sing of palm or pine. Am I something restful to you? Or a grave on which to rest from singing. Again, another shorter sentence within a line and then the shortest sentence in the whole poem coming right at the end choose i want to get onto that in a minute because i love that bit of the poem i don't know why i'm whispering the kids are asleep next door that could be one reason why um so just looking at the sentences okay we've looked a little bit of what's being said but looking at the sentences we start with these massive long sentence so so the first sentence of the entire sonnet is four and a half lines long the final sentence is is one word one metric foot one rhyming word at the end of a line and so you get this sense of the whole thing paring down this elaborate overwrought sentence and then this tightening of focus throughout the whole poem until that point at the end and what is that line at the end it's an ultimatum it really is an ultimatum do we get together now or or are we history now that's one way of saying it because i think there's another element to this um but that's what i love about that that these long sort of emotional sentences where she's really praising him but then they slightly pare down and then we we move from praise to to a choice being presented and then just in case your man didn't get the hint because let's face it we're rubbish like that about getting the hint sometimes things do have to be whittled down to their to their most base and concise element and so she does it in this poem when she finishes it with a line say finally finally saying the word choose I love how that works. I love the different registers in this poem. I love the different emotional states that are expressed in this poem. I love how she goes from being this poor doting woman who is complimenting the man who is who is saying how important she is to him and then slowly whittles things down to finally the tone changing completely and her just saying, choose. I, I'm not waiting anymore. Now, I am, I implied that there is something else to this she mentions the grave the grave you know and the memory this is more than a couple splitting up she's talking about death and death hangs around a lot 
in this in this sequence of sonnets the first sonnet in the whole sequence she speaks about how something kind of grabs her from behind and she thinks it's death but it isn't it's love and this interplay between love and death carries on throughout the poem and she's stuck in one place and we really get this sense of the man outside of this robert browning moving about the world moving all over the place but still being tied to her but it's her death that haunts proceedings she was not a well woman she was confined to her bed the the idea of her her dying was very real and it's interesting that she sees his love as something that could rejuvenate her something that could bring her back to life because that's exactly what happened when they eloped together to italy it is it's said that her health did improve when they got together so she's this is not some dramatic plea this is not some guilt trip this is pretty truthful what she's laying on him here so death is really part of it death is part of this relationship i mean she talks about god a lot as well and god in that first sonnet is spoken about as the other person that knows about what they feel so there's three people in their relationship because no one else knows how they feel about each other at that stage um, apart from god He's that other person in the relationship. So, so when they speak to each other, they're speaking to him too. It's a fantastic first poem. But this this poem it, it gives it just gives that idea that um, there really is that that just that sense of diminishing. I mean, maybe the, the way the poem diminishes as well gives that sense of diminishing time, running out of time. But it begins with this very elaborate sentence, which is really tricky to navigate until you really get the sense of it. But then it just becomes so unambiguous at the end. It strips away the ambiguity. So what is typical, before we look into the form of this poem, what is typical of this poem as, as a Victorian poem? How does it represent its epoch? Um, a lot of people call this sequence of sonnets a sort of dramatic lyric sequence. Um, I called The Flea by John Donne a dramatic lyric a few weeks back. And so the, the dramatic monologue, um, as written by Robert Browning, uh, they were written as a sort of there would be a definite character that would be played who who wasn't the the character of the poet they were playing something out playing someone else um sometimes these characters were murderers sometimes these characters were sinners fornicating monks being caught during curfew um at the wrong end of the town in a certain red light district area of um a a a a medieval city so sometimes these these poems were set hundreds of years they were set in the renaissance and other times as well so you get this idea that that it's very much like a drama very much like a play that the the the, the, the dramatic lyric which i'm gonna read i'm gonna go back to the dramatic lyric and we'll go back to browning himself anyway in a few weeks but but the dramatic lyric is that it's almost like a little play but it's just it's just the one character speaking we we get the idea that someone's there's there's an interlocutor there is someone that they're speaking to or someone that is questioning them but we never hear that person we just get to hear the monologue from the character but but the most important things to remember is that there's a dramatic situation there's a specific thing that is happening in a specific place in which it's happening and then on top of that you have the um the character of themselves who often isn't the character of the poem they're playing they're definitely playing someone else now in these poems elizabeth barrett browning is obviously elizabeth barrett browning even though she's just made a really bad attempt to say oh no it's someone from portugal it's someone from portugal who's who's writing to her lover and he's writing back to her and she's writing to him 
he's writing back to her. She's writing back to him. He's writing back to her. I don't know what 573 is in Portuguese, but once again, you get the idea. Um, so, so, so you can tell. I, 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 I'm pretty sure no one was fooled by this clever conceit to say it was a Portuguese poem. But you can understand why, perhaps. Well, there's a few reasons why that that she tried this little disguise. It wasn't just because of um, I don't know how taut the actual the actual relationship was. You know, the pressure with the father who did not approve of their relationship. I think also it was um, fact that she was a woman, and it was seen unseem as unseemly for a woman to lay her heart so bare, to speak of her private feelings, to speak of her private relationship situation. So some of it was still to do that, even though we we have many more woman poets suddenly springing up in the, um, the Victorian era, and in the in the eras beyond that. In fact, this is really the Victorian era. It really is a time of a great flourishing of woman poets who can finally step into the limelight. I have no doubt that women, woman poets have, have brilliant woman poets who are much better, probably, than many canonical male poets have existed before. Then it just so happens that this is a time when they can finally be brought to light, where they're able to kind of punch through and to really make their mark. So, part of her saying it's a bunch of Portuguese translations is is almost that sense where she has to keep it hidden still a little bit um but but yeah so so um death was a part of the poem god is a part of the sequence of poems and um and we have the double pattern in this poem in a lot of her poems in in these in this sequence not always evident in this one but the poems they but they have that sort of dramatic voice the, the speaker is quite emotional so that's why it lends that and and there tends to be a situation within the poems as well there tend to sometimes be real situations that we can think of she speaks about when the first kiss happened like the first kiss was on the hand then there was another kiss on the forehead and then finally there was a kiss on the lips and she remembers all three of them there's another time when she's in a specific situation holding their letters and feeling the weight of them in her hands um, a lot of times where she speaks about the door so so it's a lyric poem in the sense that it's told from the first person. It's that per first person is identifiable as the poet themselves, and they are expressing that expressing their emotional states. But it's a, but it's also a, a, um, a dramatic poem, a dramatic not a monologue, but a dramatic poem because because there's, there's that sense of a setting, there's a sense of a situation, and um, there's that sort of slightly hypercharged emotional state of the poet as well coming through. A few thoughts on the poem itself as a sonnet. It's an Italian sonnet, much like um, the Waterloo Bridge sonnet this time. So she only uses she only uses four rhyming science. She only uses four rhyming sounds in the whole poem: um, notes before, roar, floats, um, antidotes for, poor, devotes. So yes, the or sound and the oats rhyming sound, and then the, then the next two. So that's in the octave. And then that's the first eight lines in the final in the final six lines. It's it's um, vine use fine interfuse pine chew. So ein and ooze. 
of the two rhyming sounds that are used in the the end of a poem. Now, one thing I haven't touched on in the Italian sonnet, apart from the fact that it uses fewer end rhyming, you know, fewer rhymes for the end rhymes, the rhymes at the end of each line, and therefore requires a lot more skill from an English poet, a language that does not have as many rhyming words as Italian does. But the other thing that an Italian sonnet does, in fact, a lot of sonnets, most sonnets have, is something called a turn or I love the Italian word for it, the volta. So the volta is a point where there's a shift of emphasis in the poem. And that point normally comes at the end of the eighth line and at the beginning of the final six lines. That's when the turn normally happens. And people have pointed out that this follows, the dimensions of the poem follows that great Renaissance convention of the golden ratio and the uh, Fibonacci numbers sequence as well. So all you need to know is it's a particular kind of proportion that is found in how shells are formed in the natural world, this sort of number sequence, but also the way in which space is divided in compositions, especially in a classical sense, that this is a sort of ratio that's used again and again. And it's a very aesthetically, a very visually pleasing ratio, which is why it's used a lot in, in, in paintings and in photography and in films to compose a, a, a visual image. Now, the interesting thing I think about Barrett's poems is the turn is always just just like there's a lot of enjambment and sentences tend to end in the middle of lines and then sort of carry over lines as well. For a lot of the time, her turn is just a little bit before or a little bit after. And I think it sort of gives that sort of jarring motion, just as you get the jarring motion from the enjambment. She was very much influenced by the Romantic poets. She was a huge fan of the Romantic poets. They they informed her progressive politics, but I think they also informed how she conveyed her emotion as well. And I think so. there's something quite Victorian in the sense that we get these little dissonances, these little sort of the ways in which the emotion is being expressed, but there's the classical form of the poem, there's the two readings, there's the sort of outpouring of the emotion, and then there's the the the, the shell, the, the the cage that the poem is kept in, the form, and you almost feel this sense of this woman who's who has to stay in her bedroom trying to break out of her cage in this sense. So so where does the turn come in this poem? I, I've ummed and ahed. So where is this change of emphasis? I think it comes after, it comes at a line late. So it comes at the end of a line, vine to such ends and mine to wait on vine. There's a little bit of an emphasis, a bit, bit, bit of a, you know, she's still talking about his gift, but then she's talking about her gift in relation to his gift and how her gift it sort of feeds from him and supports him as well at the same time, whereas his gift takes from the world and gives to the world, even though it gives to the gives to her at the same time because it is given to the world. But I think the real change of emphasis is when she starts questioning him. How, dearest, wilt thou have me for most use, a hope to sing by gladly, or a fine, sad memory with thy songs to interfuse, a shade in which to sing of palm or pine, a grave in which to rest from singing? choose so i think that's that it just that whole part of the poem seems to hang together and so that's why i think it's a late turn um some people might say that oh 
it sort of ends at the end of that second long sentence and then it begins leads into her questions with god's will devotes vine to such ends and mine to wait on vine so if anything the, the, if that's the case then the turn is half a line early so i'm still making the same point it's not happening bang on at that point where it's expected to happen this happens a lot with sonnets people have their turns a little earlier a little late it's quite organic but I think this echoes how, how she's using the form, how the form is used throughout the sequence and and how it sort of illustrates this idea of this, this tension between emotion and convention. I think I've said quite a lot about the poem and yet I feel I've, I've said absolutely nothing about the poem as well. Um, I think you should read the poem again. Have a read yourself, because I think it deserves quite a few readings. I, I really liked this poem when I read it. I, I kind of, I, I, this is the first time this week when I've read the entire sequence um, from beginning to end. I've read, I've known some of the more famous poems. The most famous being the penultimate poem, "How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways." I think everyone knows that poem or has heard that line at least. But it's a lovely sequence to read, and she's so intelligent and so inventive. And it's a wonderful counterplay between this raw emotional expression and yet just a clever use of ideas and the clever use of the form. She really is a fantastic poet. And um, <laughs> and I think, I think that's all I can say. I wish I could say more about this poem, but um, it's been a long week. And I don't even know what I'm going to do now when I wander off on one. So I'm going, <laughs> but I'm going to wander off on one anyway, and we'll see it where it goes. So everyone knows, regular listeners will know, when I wander off on one, it means that I am abandoning any kind of pretense at an academic reading of the poem. And I'm going to move on to just free-flowing and just pulling ideas out of my fundament and hopefully we'll all have a lot of fun while it happens so and wander off on one is also an acronym and so in order to signify that very point i, I play the noise that i play every episode which is this well it's this once i can get this stupid app to play the thing it is this <laughs> rick flair saying woo There's something about poetic form that I often I, I often defend poetic form because people can go they can re, so that people can go against poetic form because they feel it's it's too logical it's like solving a puzzle it's like um, you're restraining your unconsciousness um, whereas with a free verse poem a poem where that doesn't necessarily follow any rules, a poem that seems to come from the intuition of the poet a lot more. A free verse poem is more free in its ideas, and the poet is like Jackson Pollock splashing paint on the canvas. The poet is just following their creative muse. And I I totally disagree. Um, we spoke about the imagination a few weeks back, and I totally disagree. Um, I I think that when a poet is completely free... And I, when I write prose poems, I guess I'm 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 in I'm indulging in my freedom. But um, I often follow my imagination's usual tracks, so the ways in which my thoughts carry on, 
and the ways and what, I'm just adjusting my headphones if that's a bit noisy I apologize but I, I, I just follow the paths that my, my thoughts normally normally follow and they're like a little sheep path or something like that on the side of a hill um, I don't often go through new places when I'm just letting my thoughts wander not when I'm writing anyway even when I'm free writing free writing is when you sort of do automatic writing and um, you don't take your you don't take your pen off the page and you just carry on writing without stopping for a certain amount of time now that's not true actually I think I do get some things jump out of my head but there's something about using a poetic form that allows me to build new paths into my unconscious mind that I wouldn't have done otherwise and I think one reason why that works is because I often have to find a rhyme to, to one word to rhyme with another so if I'm doing a sonnet and I'm at my final rhyming couplet and I've I've written the word, I don't know, let's say my final line of my, my sonnet is um, uh, um, and under <laughs> the blazing light of Ganymede, let's say. So I've got Ganymede now. So I have to find something with Eed at the end of it. Now, maybe that's it. Maybe Ganymede's like a moon. And if if there's there's a moon, I think about um, the religion of Islam, and maybe I'm thinking of Eid as well, and how moon cycles kind of um, you know preceding Eid um, is, is fasting, and how that's determined by moon cycles. So just by looking at two, so I'm just being saying Ganymede by rhyming Ganymede and Eid, I'm thinking what's the link between those two moons? Okay. So, so the blazing light of Ganymede, um, is there some kind of analog? Like if there's a, if there's, if there's a moon on this planet and it has a religious significance, then what significance do moons and other planets have? You see, I'm really going off on one, but I had nothing. Do you, do you see what I mean now? I had nothing to go off on one about. I just said it to you. I was just about to go off on one. I played Woo from Ric Flair and I had nothing to go off on one about. My imagination drew up a blank. Because I had nothing to talk about and because I had too much freedom. Because Ric Flair said woo and then there was silence, which I could fill with anything. And all I could do was just carry on talking about sonnets. But then I get two words that rhyme, Ganymede and Eid, and I immediately start making connections between the two. And and the first thing I think of that links them is obviously the idea of moons. Um that's what it does that's what a form does so whatever form you're writing be it a haiku or a sestina or a villanelle um i'm a bit facetious about sestinas and villanelles i think they have a bit of a reputation for being poems that are quite difficult to write and when people show you a villanelle or a sestina it's more about the fact that they were able to write one rather than it being anything that they enjoyed writing or anything that they have any right to expect you to to enjoy reading or listening to um so let's look at other forms shall we but let's say a ballad let's say a sonnet um there's something about formal poetry because you have to fit so many words into a structure and so that can that constrains you um the imagination is about constraints rather than it is about freedom and it is the, the constraints that 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 cause the the imagination to step up its game 
and find new connections. And we spoke last week about romanticism, about how the romantics saw logic as something that chops things apart and imagination as things that jo is what joins things together. And that's what happens. You get two sounds or two words or a way that I have to get from here to here, link two things together and the imagination just kicks in. And the next moment I'm, I'm, I'm just making new connections and I'm, I'm making new connections that I would never have made if I had just stuck to the idea of freedom or just without any other kind of constraint or rules. I just thought I'd let my, my thoughts go wherever they want to. They just go to the same places they went to before. I think that's a pretty good bit of going off on one there. I'm going to leave it there because I want this to be a shorter podcast and my voice is going as well. I've got a toothache as well. I've got a really bad toothache, which I will be getting take, looked at um, in a few days time. And it's just been a weird one. It's been school holidays and I'm once again sort of in another room, not the room I normally record things in. And, I, and I'm drinking a beer while doing my podcast as well. So it's it's all a bit crazy. But next week I get back to my caffeinated mornings in the flat by myself, by my pretentious bookshelf um, podcasts, so we can get back. I think I'll get my groove back on. So hopefully this was fun for you anyway. I'm, I still reckon, I'm, I know what's going to happen. I, this happens with every podcast. I, 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 I press the stop button on my recorder, and I remember all the things I was meant to say that I didn't say. I will end by saying the normal stuff, which is, hey, if you enjoyed this, please share it. Um, you can listen to any other episodes as well. I've made quite a few of them. If this is your first time listening to it. Oh, my throat is getting sore now. This is amazing. Um, so I really need to wrap this up. But um, yeah, if if you want to help me, um, if you want to help the podcast to grow, then if you're on Apple, please, if you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave a, a, a nice review. Um, don't leave a bad review. That's not very nice. If you don't like it, you can abuse me on Twitter at Poet Nile, P-O-E-T-N-I-A-L-L. -L. So if you have anything horrible to say about me, um, just just throw it at me on Twitter and I'll, I'll retweet you because I, I, I might find it hilarious. And um, and if you feel that Twitter isn't good enough, if, if you want to say something nice to me, um, you can email me because email, let's let's be nice via email. If you want to begin a correspondence, that sounds a bit weird because it wouldn't be like, you know, I'm a happily married man and I've got a wonderful family. So I'm not saying it in that way. I, I'm not looking for my own Robert Browning. <laughs> um, I, I would just say, but hey, if you want to have a chat with me, then feel free to email me. You can email me at rustysonnets at gmail.com. And if you want to feedback to me about anything um, about the podcast, um, or any ideas that you have for poems that I might look at in the future, then you can email me at rustysonnets at gmail.com and um, I really look forward to reading your email if Twitter is, is a bit too short form for your needs. So that is that is it. That is everything. I think I've plugged everything. I've asked you to share it if you can and I've asked you to leave a nice review if you can. I'll be back next Saturday. I'm recording this Friday night. This is like nearly 11 o'clock Friday night and I will be... Um, I will be editing it frantically tonight and getting it posted um, for tomorrow so that I'm still on time. But it's every damn Saturday, we're going to look at some modernism next week. And we'll probably look at another woman poet as well next week. As promised, thank you for listening. Have a good week. Have a good weekend. Have a good whatever. Thank you very much. Bye bye. <laughs>